Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. So you have to look at both sides. So there's the person that's leaving, the the person that's struggling with the anxiety disorder or depression or whatever it is. And then there's the person that is struggling with the mental health issue who was being left, if you will. In that situation, the the story that I see again and again and again is I don't know how I can possibly manage without this person. I'm terrified. I'm having panic attacks. I can't sleep. My OCD is off the charts now. All of those things. But when you come back to them down the road, when life has thrown them, and this is a gross oversimplification, but we can use it. Life has thrown them in the deep end of the pool and they were forced to swim especially when there's kids involved. What am I going to do? I have to take care of my kids. That's when they learn. That's when you learn as the person that's struggling, who thinks they're being left behind. Oh, look, I I can do this. I can handle my anxiety. My thoughts are not emergencies. Like they're forced to be, to go into that recovery mode where they change their behavior and take what they feel are behavioral risks. I'm going to have to go to the supermarket or the kids aren't eating this week. And I had a panic attack in the frozen food section, but I made it. I did it. The thing I refused to do for 10 years, I did. And look, I could do it. So they begin to learn. And and the story that you often hear down the road, whether it's six months, a year, two years, is I can't believe I did it. And I'm a better person because of it. One of the unique facets of high-conflict divorce is trauma, which many couples experience first as children in dysfunctional families, and then again throughout their adult relationships. These marriages often ricochet between hostile behavior and tense reactivity, causing further disorder to the entire family. The Divorce Trauma Recovery Series explores the impact of mental illness, addiction, and trauma on individuals, and examines some of the many modalities available to support deep healing. Welcome back to another episode of Divorce Trauma Recovery, a look at alternative approaches. Today, we're discussing anxiety during divorce, a look at both normal anxiety and anxiety disorder, and the red flags uh, you want to watch out for, especially with your children. So uh, the bottom line is anyone journeying into and through divorce um, has at best many moments of normal anxiety. Then there are individuals who have anxiety disorder um, or who are married to someone who has anxiety disorder. Um, What's the difference? And what happens when your normal or disordered anxiety is triggered? And most importantly, what can be done to calm these triggered reactions? Today, we take a look at how to manage normal and disordered anxiety. And we also look at 
our children, how divorce and anxiety can affect them and what the normal and red flags are and what we can do to support our kids. So I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, Drew Linciata, who is an anxiety expert. And he's an expert, a graduate student, a therapist in training, and a former, yes, former sufferer of anxiety and depression for over 25 years. Drew uses his journey and knowledge to help others that are where he used to be. So I'm pretty curious about today's conversation. Let's jump in. Welcome, Drew. Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you for joining us. Anytime. So, you know, that last piece of the intro, which is uh, you've had anxiety and depression. You had anxiety and depression for over 25 years and you're free of it. Can you just give us a little bit? I know there's probably a very big backstory, but just a little bit to 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 let our listeners know where you're coming from. Yeah, sure. So I lived with that for the better part of about 25 plus years of my life on and off, like it sort of came and went. Uh, there were three sort of major, you know, uh, go rounds with anxiety and depression where I was pretty crippled with it. I, you know, it's a little bit tough to talk about, but um, I wrote about it. And uh, yeah, for me, my issue was not just that I was an anxious person. I literally developed anxiety disorders, panic disorder, agoraphobia, probably OCD, although you know, I was never formally diagnosed with that. That would come and go. And I was 100% in the midst of what most people would recognize as clinical depression. But now I don't have those issues. This is not to say that I don't experience anxiety sometimes, but we're going to talk about the difference between just like anxiety and an anxiety disorder. So I might have anxious days from time to time now and then. I'm just not afraid of that anymore. And it doesn't, doesn't rule my life anymore. And as far as depression goes, you know, it, it, that's not a thing. I, can, it, I struggle with it a little bit here and there, but not nearly even at close to the level that I used to. I mean, it was really, it was tough back then. And um, is is your experience part of what led you into therapy? Yeah, it's kind of strange. Like I, I've always been a bit of a nerd when it comes to psychology and really cognitive theory and learning theory. And I, I kind of, you know, was into the mechanics of those things, even as an undergrad way back when, for those, if you, there's video, there's gray in my beard. So it was a while ago. And uh, something that I was always very interested in. So when I encountered these problems in my life, I was able to fall back on those things uh, and use some of those things that I understood the mechanics of anxiety disorders and, and exposure therapy and that sort of stuff, just because I was into it already. And then having lived that experience, and when I finally sort of got my act together and really did all the recovery work around 2006 to 2008 in that neighborhood, I met some friends online and we supported each other on YouTube, believe it or not. It was the early days of that. And then one day I said, you know, I feel like I got so much help. I should probably just try to pay it back into the universe in some way. So I fired up a little $5 app on my crappy early iPhone and by myself and I'll do a podcast. I talked to nobody because every podcaster starts talking to nobody. And that just sort of snowballed. And here we are eight years later and it turned into this. So, yeah, it makes me feel like it definitely pointed me in that, that direction. I was just trying to be useful and pass my experience on. And, and over time, it just was like, this is silly. Why do I not just go and get myself formally educated and actually do the thing? So here we are. Wow. So yeah. what is the name of your podcast? My podcast is called The Anxious Truth. So you can find that at just theanxioustruth.com. It's not just search for that. You'll find it. It's everywhere. 
And so it's your, the anxious truth is both your website and your podcast. Correct. If you just search for the anxious truth, you'll find all the stuff. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll, we'll ping everyone again at the end, but I wanted to just say that right up front. So here we are. Um, Most of our listeners are, they could be before, during, or after divorce. Uh, Many of them are, we tend to specialize in high conflict divorce. So many of them are dealing with personality disorders. They might have some of their own, you know, there may be addiction, there may be alcoholism, there may be um, a lot of trauma on both sides of the marriage. There may be, um, you know, all, all types of things. And so let's start with, let's start with just normal anxiety. You're entering this, this, this foreign land, everything's on the table, everything's about to change. It's the biggest transition of your life. You don't know how much you're going to see your kids. You don't know how much money's going to be in the bank. You don't know which friends are going to stick with you. You don't know if you'll ever talk to your in-laws again and on and on and on and on. I mean, this is like so huge. Obviously, there are going to be anxious moments. Can you just talk us through um, normal anxiety, what it looks like, um, what causes it, and maybe what some tips of what our listeners could do. Yeah, sure. I, it's a really important discussion because there is a difference. So in that situation, first of all, it is one of the top five most stressful things to happen to a human being. It's pretty well acknowledged at this point. The loss of a major relationship like that, you know, a death, loss, moving, changing your location, changing careers, having a child. These are the biggies, right? Um, so sure, divorce, especially high conflict divorce, is going to trigger a lot of feelings, right? So all the things that you you listed there, am I going to send my in-laws? What's going to happen with the kids? All of that, am I going to have enough money? That is stress, threat, stress, threat, stress, threat. So naturally, it's going like you can't make a better list than that. So naturally, it's going to trigger some feelings of fear. There's uncertainty. There's feelings of vulnerability. And those can snowball into just feelings of anxiety. Anxiety is I'm worried about what's going to happen in the future. And that's totally expected. Anybody who goes through that is going to experience that. What we kind the way we sort of define that is anybody who's going through an experience like that, who experiences normal air quotes, normal anxiety, or what I would say the healthy anxiety, it's generally externally focused. So I'm going through so much right now. So much is uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen. And I am a mess right now. They understand why it's happening and they under they maintain their focus on the external the stressor and the threat that is in front of them. I'm a mess right now. I have to go to court today. We have, you know, we're seeing the lawyers today. Oh my God, I'm so nervous. They understand why they're nervous. And so you work through it the best you can by dealing with the life event. The issue where it gets a little bit, and we'll get to that, I guess. In that situation, all the standard sort of wellness and self-help and, you know, self-care advice absolutely applies you know, taking care of yourself, trying to manage your stress, making sure you have healthy outlets, making sure you have social support or a therapist to talk to or someplace to put those feelings where they get validated and acknowledged and you can work them through. All of those things apply 100%. You've heard all, probably heard all of that advice before, I'm guessing. Right, right. And and so, so much of what we do with our clients too is they get into this this place of fear and we help them poke around at you know what's what is the worst case scenario is that really going to happen what are maybe some of the other options and and to help them kind of take it from this big overwhelming piece to something a little bit more yeah. um 
that they can navigate, right? And that's more tangible and more realistic too. Yeah. And I'm also hearing you talk about so so having having that support network and also um um the self-care piece to to really be taking care of themselves because when you're in that much anxiety, um what happens when you have that amygdala cortisol over overload, especially when you're standing before the judge or you're at the four way negotiating with your spouse and you're like, I've lost my mind. I've got nothing. I can't remember a talking point I had. Yeah. Um, right. Like, can we just talk a little bit so that they can oh, understand yeah. what's happening to them physiologically? Yeah. And it's interesting because that's where sometimes the anxiety starts to go off the rails because people would understand, wow, I'm really anxious and I should be anxious right now. This is normal. But anxiety will produce so many physiological and cognitive responses. So that thing where I can't remember my talking points, I don't even know. I, I don't remember what piece of paper it's on. You're, you, you have that your cognitive ability to process things just goes right into the gutter because that's not what your brain is focused on. Your brain is focused on survival in that moment, not being pithy and remembering the comments. Uh, you know, your heart's going to race. People will experience feeling like somebody's sitting on their chest. They might shake. They might feel hot and cold and sweat and be out of breath. And your knees might be knocking. Your stomach is churning. It feels like you have to run to the bathroom again and again and again. All of you might feel a little bit dizzy or off balance. You might hear ringing in your ears. You might have visual disturbances. All of those things. And the most extreme uh, um, expression of that is what we might call a panic attack where a bunch of those symptoms all happen at once. And it feels like I am literally dying right now. I must get out of here. That can happen too. I, you have, may have experienced that with some of your clients who get into those high pressure situations. I'm at the floor. I actually, I have the room is I, spinning and I feel like I'm going to faint. I had my one and only panic attack. I was sitting in my office. I was in the thick of my divorce and we had a lot of um, financial struggles. Sure. And so the discovery is go back three years, every credit card, every bank statement. And I'm sitting there and I'm like literally breathing in the toxicity of 10 years of financial irresponsibility. And my mom was a therapist and I called her and I said, I'm having a heart attack. Right. And, right. and, and I was like, I was, and I was a pretty calm person even back then. And I was freaking out. I was like, mom, there's this knot in my chest. I can't breathe. I'm cold and sweaty. I've got an ache. And, and she was like, she asked me what I was doing. And she said, stand up, take the phone, walk outside. And she walked me down the block and back and off the ledge and back to sure. in my body. So I just, I just wanted to share that because that was so scary for me. And, um, and I knew what it came from, or I knew what I was doing was upsetting, but the connection was not there at all. That part where you said I wasn't a terribly anxious person is key because so many people experience that. And again, just regular anxiety, not disordered anxiety. If they've never experienced before, they don't understand like, wow, I didn't know I could do that. And yeah, it can do that. It does that to a lot of people. Yeah. 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 So I, I love. So just, you know, uh, everyone just the that Drew is normalizing this, so that if you start experiencing these things, I, I I hope that you can remember this conversation and really put it in the context of what's going on. And in that moment, okay, I called mom. What do you recommend in, in the moment of, holy shit, something's going on here that's bad? What do you recommend that people do? 
Well, I think it can feel really overwhelming and incapacitating, right? So a panic attack, most people will say, I I'm incapacitated by this. When it, when it gets to that extreme fever pitch, you know, calling your mom was a pretty good idea, to be honest with you. Now, when we get into the part where it becomes an anxiety disorder, that starts to become a little bit counterproductive sometimes. And we'll talk about that if you like, but reach out to a support person, someone you trust. Almost everybody that experiences a panic attack or that high level of anxiety for the first time in their life will immediately have the same thought you had. I'm losing my mind. Top top three things. I'm dying, I'm losing my mind, or I'm about to completely lose control in some amorphous way that I can't really define, but it's terrifying me. So that initial interpretation of something bad is happening to me right now is incredibly normal. And it's really okay to reach out to somebody who can say, you're okay, I'm looking at you, you're fine. Clearly you're in a panic situation. Let's just talk through this, you're gonna be okay. And most people come out the other end. And it was, wow, that's stunk. I hope that doesn't happen again. And then they move on. That's the normal way to experience the normal. I'm not, I shouldn't use that word, but that's the most common way to experience panic or high anxiety in those stressful situations. Okay. Yeah. Asking okay, for help. So There's nothing wrong with asking for help and being told you're okay. You're just panicking. That's okay. We need that. And, you know, this question's coming to me because I interviewed someone who wrote a book on emotions and she it just came back to me. She talked about the difference between panic and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And she talked about something she referred to as panxiety. Like if you were to describe the difference, because you're it almost sounds like you're using them interchangeably and that might just be her her paradigm but i'm curious yeah is there a difference between panic and anxiety i mean to me panic is just the most extreme expression of anxiety so okay. a lot of time is spent trying to what's the difference between a panic attack and anxiety attack who cares in my paradigm yeah. I don't care like it's just <laughs> panic is just like major league expression of anxiety okay. it's boiled over triggers okay. the fight or flight or freeze response yeah. And I think that would that would define where I was at in that moment really well, because there were a lot of anxious moments going through the divorce. But that one seemed to yeah. it was like I dove into a toxic vat and it was it was really, really scary. So yeah, it just pushes you over the edge and boom, you're in that spot. Exactly. So, OK, so now let's look at, um, you know, a, again, going through a high entering a high conflict marriage, it's, you know, the vast majority of people entering a high conflict marriage, they're, they're coming from some dysfunction. They're coming from um, trauma. They're coming from parents who had personality disorders, or they're coming from severely dysfunctional behavior, right? And so they're kind of like finding that intimate love experience again on a subconscious level. And so we we kind of know that. So here we've got this audience of people who um, who are either struggling with anxiety disorder themselves or maybe are divorcing someone with an anxiety disorder. Let's talk about both sides of that coin. Yeah. So one of the things that I see quite often in my community, and I'm very fortunate to not only be able to talk to thousands of people, but with them, my community has been very engaged. So I, I hear what they say. And it's a, to me, it's a privilege. And I've learned so much from them. It is a very, very common story for me to hear what you're describing. And that is, I'm in a relationship, a marriage or some other romantic relationship that I know isn't good for me. And it is it has to end. 
And either one or either we both agree or one is resistant to that or whatever it is. So that's stressful enough as it is. But what sometimes happens is one or both parties is going to have a struggle with that separation from the anxiety standpoint, especially if they come into it with already some issues. Because when we talk about anxiety disorders, there's a lot of overlap. So when somebody who develops an anxiety disorder is very likely to also have some other issue, maybe it's an addiction issue or it's a trauma issue or emotional regulation issues. There's a lot of overlap. They tend not to exist just by themselves. They can, but somebody who develops agoraphobia is likely to also have another issue at some point. And then the separation, because often the partners become safe people for them. They might be in a toxic relationship and a high conflict relationship, but yet they may act as each other's safe person or one is the safe person for the other. And there's no reciprocation there, but it causes some issues when the relationship begins to dissolve. There's a lot there to talk about. There's a lot there to unpack. It depends on so, the circumstance. So let's speak to um, to the person divorcing someone with sure. an anxiety disorder. I think that okay. that would be that. That's where I'd like to go with this right now. So here I am. This you know, I've got my own issues, but yep. anxiety yep. isn't one of them. I'm my spouse's safe person. I've decided I'm done. I can't, I can't do this anymore. This isn't healthy for me. I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, can you just walk us through some, some of what might occur um, and how to handle it? Yeah, we could do that. And I think one of the things I would probably put it there first, and this is difficult, especially if it's a high conflict breakup, the person that you are leaving who is suffering from this particular mental health issue doesn't want to be dependent upon you. So as crazy as it is to ask in a situation where the relationship is ending and maybe in a not an amicable way, a little bit of compassion is can help the, the person that's leaving also recognizing that this person isn't trying to trap me. They don't want to trap me. They're not trying to make my life a, a living hell. They just feel that they are literally unable to cope with life without me. Even though we're not getting along and clearly this relationship at end, I'm safety for them. So what they're likely to experience is that their partner will, in many instances, beg them to not leave. You know, figuratively or metaphorically speaking, it's the I'm going to grab you by the leg and then you have to drag me at the door as you're leaving. I'm going to beg you to not leave. How can I possibly do this without you? I can't do this without you. And especially in a circumstance where some time has gone by where that other partner has been dependent upon you. For to do the grocery shopping because they are homebound or they have panic attacks. So they have a huge number of restrictions on their life that you then take up the slack for. I can't go pick up the kids from school. I can't go too far from home. We don't go to family events. I isolate myself. It's really hard when you leave and that person is left with a specter of, oh no, now I don't have this person to take care of me. So they're likely to be, you know, get the old, like, please don't go. What can we do? I hear that all the time. And the, the crazy part about it is, or the difficult part about it is the other partner doesn't necessarily want to do that, but they feel like they have to. So you are like, they have to, yeah. In other words, they might understand also that the relationship has to end and they might even want it to end, but they feel like they have to try to keep it together because how will I ever live without this other person that takes care of me and keeps me safe from my, you know, I just. I love this. And what I want to interject is we're always talking to clients about how they, you know, we all have our perspective based on our life experience. And what you're saying here is, in my words, is what what might look like manipulation. Yes. Or an overbearing sense of control. Yep. 
Like we often talk about how it could be grief. It could be the bargaining stage of grief. What you're saying is it could be just this person wrangling within their own head and heart about how to let this thing happen, even if they know it should. Yeah. And that could certainly be part of it, you know, sort of the bargaining part of grief as the relationship ends. Sure. But there's also very practical considerations in that person's mind. I can't do the grocery shopping. I can't take phone calls. I don't go to family functions. I don't socialize. I've lost my friends. I can't leave the house. I'm crippled by these intrusive thoughts. This person has been my safety blanket and my buffer against the world. And now they're gone. So what am I going to do about that? So it's beyond that. And it's not, they do not mean to be manipulative. An anxiety disorder will look incredibly manipulative, incredibly self-centered and incredibly selfish. That's the disorder. That's not the person. And I'm not trying to excuse it because that still puts a burden on the partner that's leaving. Do not get me wrong. That's impactful on them. But in many cases, when it's driven by that, it is not intentional. That is not a person suddenly trying to trap you, manipulate you, or guilt trip you. They are genuinely terrified that you are about to walk out the door. You've been listening to our podcast, Getting Educated, Regulating Your Emotional Reactions, and it's been really helpful. Yet you know you could do better, be better, and you're wanting and needing more support. That's where our coaching service is a game changer. We're here for you when you need us the most, ensuring you have all the tools and resources at your fingertips, guiding and supporting you to be more effective. Our free rapid relief call helps you gain a broader perspective, commit to your best next steps, and determine what coaching support is right for you. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call today. So let's say, let's, let's just speak to the really evolved person who wants to get the hell out, but hears you and wants to do the right thing and, yeah. and, and actually maybe can and has the capacity to do the right thing. Let's just talk to whatever narrow lane of people that is, um, because I know that's a pretty heavy lift, yeah. um, but, but let's talk to them. So that's a big ask. So let's say you're saying, okay, First of all, if all you can do is find your way to some compassion, and I love what you just said, and separate, please, if you can, the human being from the disorder and see the behavior as the disorder and not the person as being controlling or manipulative. Okay, let's say we've got some people who are sitting on their edge of the seat going, I got that, no problem. What else can I do? Um, In that situation, hey, listen, you know, it's not, the answer is never don't leave. It's just not. I mean, and while you might feel sometimes a sense of pity or compassion and like, oh, my goodness, like, how is this person going to do this without me? I can appreciate that. But what's going to happen has to happen. And in the end, I think it's probably the best thing that a person can do in that situation is to acknowledge, listen, I understand that you are genuinely terrified. This is not in your head. You're not making it up. I know you're not trying to manipulate me. I know you don't want to be selfish. 
And in the end, I know you want it to work out for all of us as best it can under shitty conditions. Oops, sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but this is what it is. So I'm going to try and give you as much leeway as possible. And unfortunately, the how can I help you connect back with your family? Maybe we can get you connected with a therapist. Maybe we can get you connected with some resources. It's not the partner's job to fix them in any way. You can't take on the mantle of let me fix you before I leave, but at least an acknowledgement of I understand why you're struggling with this. I'm going to I'm going to try to be compassionate toward you and not hold this against you. How can I help you learn that you can stand on your feet? Because I ultimately this is breaking up. So we got to figure that out. Way, yeah. way better way to go. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. So so the, the first thing is certainly don't stay for them. Don't don't stay for the wrong reasons. Yeah, you can't do that. Um, and, and then acknowledge and validate them as best you can and ask how you can support them. Do not. And if you're married to them, you may already be a codependent caretaker. Uh, so you don't want to slip down your own slippery slope. So you want to be able to always put your oxygen mask on first. But then if you have the capacity, I'm hearing you say, acknowledge, validate. And if there are some things you can do to support them, um, that would be great. Uh, but it's not your job and you're not there to fix them by any means. Uh, that's that's not it at all. Yeah. I mean, in the end, the best way to help somebody with an anxiety disorder, but it, it is dependent upon where that person is in their recovery and how willing they are. And if they're ready for that is to be a cheerleader, not there's no fixing. You can't make it go away. You don't protect them. You don't sue them. You don't treat, keep trying to convince them because their mind is not able to be convinced unless they change their behavior. But a cheerleader is a good thing to be. So maybe you can be a bit of a cheerleader as the relationship is dissolving. Again, that's a big ask. Don't get me wrong. I would not I wouldn't fault anybody for saying, oh, I don't know if I could do that right now. I'm not in that space. I, I would get that. I really would. Yeah. yeah. It's sticky though. Really hard. So what if I have right. let's significant flip it. anxiety? Yeah. Let's, let's flip it. Yeah. So here's where you, you have to look at both sides. So there's the person that's leaving, the, the person that's struggling with the anxiety disorder or depression, whatever it is. And then there's the person that is struggling with the mental health issue who was being left, if you will. In that situation, the the story that I see again and again and again is I don't know how I can possibly manage without this person. I'm terrified. I'm having panic attacks. I can't sleep. My OCD is off the charts now. All of those things. But when you come back to them down the road, when life has thrown them, and this is a gross oversimplification, but we can use it. Life has thrown them in the deep end of the pool and they were forced to swim especially when there's kids involved, what am I going to do? I have to take care of my kids. That's when they learn. That's when you learn as the person that's struggling, who thinks they're being left behind. Oh, look, I, I can do this. I can handle my anxiety. My thoughts are not emergencies. Like they're forced to be, to go into that recovery mode where they change their behavior and take what they feel are behavioral risks. I'm going to have to go to the supermarket or the kids aren't eating this week. And I had a panic attack in the frozen food section, but I made it. I did it. The thing I refused to do for 10 years, I did. And look, I could do it. So they begin to learn. And, and the story that you often hear down the road, whether it's six months, a year, two years, is I can't believe I did it. And I'm a better person because of it. it it's almost a universal experience. For the person who does rise to the challenge, that is almost invariably the outcome. I can't believe I did it. I thought for sure I was dead. I was never going to do it. And I did it. It's really amazing. Everyone, I want you to hear that. 
I, I mean, to me, that's like that just brought tears to my eyes because yeah. I think that 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 even in normal whatever normal your average relationship sure you know there's all these judgments like dad can't take care of the kids he's never taken care of the kids you know he goes to work like there's all these beliefs that we have and this one this belief that my and my 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 soon to be ex with anxiety disorder isn't going to be able to and and that person thinking i'm not going to be able to and then that story of you know what when push comes to shove and you you're you're feed it to the fire and you have to make a decision it can actually be the greatest gift in the world is what i'm hearing you say that it can really stretch and grow you to a place that you never thought you could be yeah nobody expects that but they tend to experience that if they're in a if they're in a place where they're able to rise to that challenge and they're ready to do that because in the end in the case of an anxiety disorder you always have to remember that People like me will always tell you, you have to go toward your fear. You have to stop avoiding. You have to stop trying to soothe your fear. You have to stop trying and fix your body. It's not a body problem. It's not, it's not an easy message to deliver for a person like me or a therapist that specializes in treating anxiety disorders, as I, as I will be. It's a hard message because it's a message of heavy lifting and hard work and intentionally deciding to be afraid and uncomfortable so that you can learn that you can handle it. What you learn and you uncover in that process is that what you saw as danger was never actually danger. So the person who's being left behind will insist that they are literally in danger. They can't quantify it, or, or but they can tell you that uh, from a, quali a qualitative standpoint, I feel like I am literally in danger, and that's why I avoid everything. But then they learn through the experience that like, well, I had to do all these dangerous things, and I learned that they weren't. They were uncomfortable. I was afraid, but I was still safe. I felt incapable, but I really was capable. So... That process is a process of really rediscovering or discovering for the first time for some people like, oh, look, I am capable. I'm capable of experiencing scary, big things that aren't actually dangerous and I can get through that. So the person who is leaving on the other side can be a facilitator there when you say, I have to leave anyway, but I know you can do this. I'm rooting for you. We have kids together, so I'm always going to root for you. Something along those lines that might be. And when that person goes through, they're going to start from like, no, I can't possibly do this. And then they, then they see that they can even though that's a very hard process to go through. A lot of heavy lifting there, a lot. Yeah. 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 Now I can hear that. Um, go toward your fear and maybe the danger isn't really that real. It is a cornerstone principle in the theoretical orientation that people like me have toward anxiety disorder treatment is that you feel, you will argue to the death with me that it feels so dangerous. And if I'm doing a good job for you, I'm going to confidently look at you and shrug my shoulders. I see you're safe. I'm not going to engage in that. I know no one understands. It's okay. Go lay down. You know, do you have your lavender oil? We're going we're gonna to go the other way. You can do this. You could be afraid and still be safe. So it's a hard process to go through. Wow. Yeah. And, and I just like, geez, just listening to you say that the empathy and compassion that comes up for me around how scary that is. And then, you know, um, as I shared, I, I have people in my life who have various disorders and uh, their brain is a bad neighborhood. Like there's a lot of self-condemnation. It's like, it's a dangerous neighborhood up there. And yeah. and so, so I, I would love for you to just speak a little bit more about this, this person leaving and, and look, everyone has a heavy lift here. Absolutely. But I would imagine the less 
judgmental and condemning the soon-to-be ex that's leaving is, as opposed to being the cheerleader, yep. that like you don't want to pour into your soon-to-be ex's negative view of him or herself, because that's just going to make it harder for them to do what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, one of the basic principles where somebody gets into that disordered state, which is an internally focused and internally generated threat, right? As opposed to externally, there's a bear about to bite my head off. That's an external threat. We'd all be scared. For a person in anxiety disorder, their their body and their minds, their thoughts and the sensations have become the threat. So they start to, and then they know logically, this isn't right. I, I, I should go to grandma's birthday party, but I'm so afraid, but I know I shouldn't be afraid, but I am. And they do. They have a very negative self-judgment about themselves. They start to suffer from an eroding sense of self-efficacy. Their confidence goes away. So the person leaving who starts doing the old, you're gaslighting me and manipulating me and you're trying to control me. Oh, it makes them, it's even harder for them to rise to the occasion. So in a way, the best you can say is, listen, I know that's not you talking. I know that's the mental health issue talking. Like I, and you know, then and then go call a girlfriend, a guy friend, and and complain yeah. about how difficult yes. and annoying your spouse is, but, totally but not, not not to them. to them, especially if your desire is that they will yeah. be the best co-parent or or ex that they can be. Right? I mean, you would think, and listen, I'm going to defer to you on this one, but uh, clearly, you would think that it's in the best interest of everybody when when both parties come out of that as healthily as they can. You would think, right? So. Yeah. I do understand, especially in the environment we are in for the past couple of years, where words like boundaries and toxicity are just thrown around, sometimes they lose all meaning. And it's going to yeah. sound like I'm telling people who are have to leave the relationship that it's re they aren't allowed to draw boundaries. Yes, you are. But, yeah. it, but a boundary, I love what you said. You know, be as supportive as you can, separate yourself, know that you're not being attacked by the person, but the disorder, and then go and vent to a friend. And if you want to say you're being gaslit and manipulated, go ahead. You're entitled to do that. It's just yeah. not productive between the parties. Yeah. And I, I think that that's uh, I, I'm realizing that that the 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 treasure, the gold in this conversation is um, is is bringing some compassion, humanity, empathy into the conversation around disorders. And, you know, everyone's a narcissist and I have a very different approach than many out there. I, 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 I think that um, how you do it, if you have, if you're in an unhealthy relationship and you have to leave, you leave, how you do it makes all the difference. It makes the difference for you. It makes the difference for your spouse. It makes the difference for the children. And so I feel like you're really spotlighting some things that none of us would know. And I know you're talking specifically about anxiety, but I'm hearing any human being who has a disordered mind did not ask for it. Um, they do not want it. Um, it is not who they are. It is how their mind is. And so, um, so, so I so appreciate this conversation. Um, I want to pivot for a second. So now let's take me. I have anxiety disorder and I still know I have to leave. Right. And I have to decide to leave because whatever's going on for my spouse, they're less likely to leave than I am. And I have to leave. Can you just like, what might that be like? That's probably the hardest version. So for the person who is suffering, knowing, and unfortunately it often surfaces in abusive relationships. like. 
my partner is literally abusive to me or the children. And I know that I have to go, yet something in me says that I can't go. That is very, very difficult. And the the only thing I can really offer in that situation is you have to give take a second. Remember to be kind to yourself as best as you can and recognize this is not me. Even though I think it's me, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? I should be protecting my children or myself. How come I can't do this? It's it's not that. It's not what's wrong with me. It's I'm really afraid. I am genuinely afraid. It's real fear. It might be baseless in the end, and we unmask that in the recovery process, but it is real fear that you are experiencing right now. It's just not rationally based, and I have to work through that. And I also have to take some what feel to me like risks. So I have to risk leaving, even though that feels dangerous, to know that I have to get away from the actual danger, whether it's physical danger or emotional danger, whatever it happens. You understand, you know. Um, Yeah. Remember that it's not what's wrong with me. It's just I'm afraid. My brain has learned to be afraid of itself and my own body and the world. And now I'm going to have to do something really what feels risky to to set this this straight. But I can do that. I, I can do that. Yes. So, so many of our clients um, come to us who have spent a little time, if not a lifetime in therapy. And, um, and as, as coaches, we support them emotionally in, in the here and now and navigating the turbulence as opposed to a therapist who's really doing all of that understanding of how did I end up here and what is here and what's wrong with me and all of this. Um, it sounds to me like it's really vitally important that uh, anyone with a mental health issue like anxiety disorder be in therapy while going through this kind of a transition. What is what is your thought on that? I am a huge fan of it. Clearly, I'm, you know, doing act, writing this third act of my life to be a licensed therapist and taking the time and making the investment, spending a lot of money and a lot of time to do that. I am a huge fan and proponent of professional help, especially. And I'm always I'm addressing a very specific mental health case. When you can build a strong therapeutic alliance with a helper of some kind, a therapist, a counselor, some, there's there's a theory in, in in therapy and counseling. This is all therapy works because of that that human interaction. It's so vital. Um, if they are trained to to deal with your specific situation, like I'm specializing in anxiety disorders, it's even better. But I also understand that not everybody has access to that. It is hard today, especially after the last three years, to find a therapist anywhere in the U.S. We have a huge shortage of qualified mental health helpers right now. We cannot train therapists and counselors fast enough. Uh, not all insurance pays for it. So I have come to realize that the ability to just pick up the phone and call a therapist and hire a therapist comes from a really privileged position that not everybody is in. Um, But yeah, if you can do it and you can make a good connection with someone that you trust, that treats you with respect and understands and listens and treats you with what we call unconditional positive regard. And if they are trained to treat your anxiety disorder, like somebody like me, you win. That can be really hard to find, though. Really hard. I hate that. It's you mentioned that you have a community. Are, are there communities? And can you just maybe tell us a little bit about yours where someone can be amidst people who understand and have that um, yeah. empathy? Yeah. So what I have tried to do is, you know, and again, if you search for the anxious truth, you'll the community exists in the comment section. Now, I, I have a Facebook group of 10,000 people that I've had to scale back a little bit because 
for somebody like me, it gets to be a little bit sticky because it doesn't scale. So mental health helping online is great and it's fulfilling, but I have professional and ethical boundaries that I have to maintain for my safety and theirs, 100%. And also it doesn't scale. So the influencer model where I should just go and get millions of followers and have lots of eyeballs and have all kinds of engagement, air quotes, if you can't see me, doesn't work in mental health. So there's even a limit to what can happen. But when you are in the comment section on my post or my videos on YouTube, or maybe you're in my Instagram subscriber group or my Facebook group, yes, you are surrounded with people who also understand that you randomly at two o'clock in the morning have the fear that your heart might stop spontaneously and it cripples you. You think I'm the only person that possibly thinks this. I'm crazy. Something's wrong with me. And then you have 10,000 people say, oh, yeah, I have that too. Or me. That was me. Just to walk around waiting for my heart to stop. So yeah, it can be very validating and very supportive to help you at least know that there's, you're, not, you're not insane. You're not broken. You're not defective or ill. You're just your, your brain is in some bad habits. Okay, so I have to I have to completely um, be transparent here. I have a loved one who um, who, yeah, had this concept that this terrible thing was happening to her, and I I wasn't. I just wasn't. I just thought it was. To me, it just seems so. Dare I say ridiculous? I like I could cry right now because I was just like talking about (laughs) that's ridiculous and so this is so eye-opening for me because with the right community of people who get you it's like yeah of course I totally get it I understand which is probably half of what that person needs in the moment yeah even a good therapist if you can manage to get yourself maybe it's a one-on-one or maybe it's a group set group therapy session or something along those lines that could that can be helpful too but the first when you're dealing with anxiety like my and maybe this person in your life has been dealing with The first thing we all do is called psychoeducation. Let me teach you the nature of what you're dealing with here. And the very first, when I wrote the book that I wrote, The Recovery Guide, is also called The Anxious Truth. I literally started that with, you are confused, lost, afraid, and discouraged. You're not ill or broken. It's the first thing they need to hear. This is not something uniquely wrong with you that you can never get better. You don't have a mental illness. Your brain is in some bad habits, and you can fix that. It's a huge lift for people to be, oh my goodness, I'm not the only one. So online support is beautiful for that. A good psychoeducator who gives you good actionable information and connects you with other people so that you know that you're not the only one dealing with this can be a huge source of support. I highly recommend it, but it has its limits. It's not therapy. Okay. So you're saying something really important, which is um, you're not broken. You can fix that. So that's one path we can go down. But I also still want to talk about the children sure. and the impact of all of this on the children. So can we end with the you're not broken, you can fix that, but kind of just pivot right now to, OK, so now, you know, dad's the codependent, mom's the anxiety disordered individual. Chaos is like breaking, breaking out worse than normal because now we're not only in this dysfunctional marriage, but we actually, everyone's having reactions. And then you've got kids and let's just say grade school, middle school kids, you have kids um, and they're receiving all of this energy and all of this chaos and the conflict that comes with it. Um, Normal flags, red flags. What are we looking at here? Um, I won't claim expertise as a child therapist or anything like that, but some of the same rules apply. So Clearly, the kids are also humans. They're just smaller humans, and they might be at a little different developmental stage than you and I. 
but they're also going to have reactions. Look, says my folks split up when I was about nine or 10 years old. And I went from like super straight A student to absolutely off the rails for a good six months. Like that was my experience as a kid. I remember it very clearly. And so the kids are going to have an, a, a reaction. They might feel sad. They might feel like it's their fault. They might, they're going to be anxious. They're uncertain. They're afraid. Like things are being pulled out from under them. So expect that reaction. We care the red flags again. It's the same as with adults. That's externally generated. I'm sad because my mom and dad are breaking up. You know, my family is breaking up. I'm uncertain. I'm afraid. Who's going to take care of me? Where am I going to wind up? External threats perceived that kick off anxiety and you help the kids work through that. We care about, I don't want to go to school today because I feel really bad when I'm in school. Like my heart races and I'm dizzy and I'm afraid. And now I'm afraid of being afraid. So now I don't want to go to school. That's the part where the anxiety becomes internalized and it's the state itself that becomes the threat. That's the that's where it gets into the definition of disordered anxiety, whether it's a kid or an adult. So as a parent, for me, I would look at, listen, I understand that this is really scary for you, but that's just your body and your brain trying to protect you doing what it's supposed to do. You're supposed to feel this way, even though I wish you didn't. And I know you wish you didn't. You're safe. Even though you feel unsafe, you're safe. And I know you can handle this. That's the okay, best. Okay, so that's it. That's it. So the it's you've said it more than once. So the internal threat is is where you take regular anxiety and it it, it it's heading toward disorder, and that's where you want to explain that. Yep. You're you're safe. You, your thoughts are making you feel unsafe. Your body's reaction to it are kind of going along with the thoughts. And so it all feels like this wave in this dangerous place, this dangerous direction. You're OK. You're OK. I know how bad it feels. I know you're legitimately afraid, but I'm going to stick with you here. I'm going to root for you. I know you can do this. Let's do one step at a time. And I'll cheer for you. Go. I know you're safe. I know you're safe. Kids especially probably need. I know you're safe. Adults that are told, I know you're safe, becomes unproductive, repetitive reassurance seeking that never sinks in. But with a with an eight-year-old, they really do, it really does help to hear mom or dad say, I know you're really afraid, but I also know you're safe. And so I'm hearing in that statement, not just I know you're safe, but um, stop being so sensitive, just get over it, and all the other things that I was raised on, those are not the kinds of things we want to be saying to these kids. We really want to be acknowledging and validating that uh, it, it, this is kind of hard for everybody. And as a kid, it totally makes sense that you're scared. Yeah, it, to it totally makes sense that you're scared. I know that this seems like the world is falling apart, but I promise you're going to get through this. I'm going to be with you, dad or mom, whoever's going to be with you. And hopefully it's working out that way. Maybe it's not, but you know, we'll navigate this together. I know you can do it. It is way better than, you know, no, definitely not. This is all in your head. Get out of bed. It's all in your head. No, you can't say that to a person who's exhibiting those signs of an anxiety disorder. It's not, they probably, a kid might understand it's in their head, but they can't control that. So that's not a fair, that's not a fair thing to say. Just in your yeah. head. Yeah. Yeah. The better yeah, way to say, no, you're safe, even though it feels unsafe. That's the better yeah. way. It's accurate. Yeah. And and I guess I hadn't thought about this, but is there anything that you would add for the parents who are splitting, who know they're that that have a child who's already been di diagnosed with anxiety disorder? So they know this, like before anybody even sits down to say, hey, the gig is up, yep. you know, things are changing. Um, anything on on taking that into consideration and how one would behave? 
Yeah, I would. And I would apply this not only to the kids, but to yourselves too. So anytime human beings get into a really stressful situation, our resiliency and our psychological flexibility begin to sag. That's just expected. So, you know, if something bad happens in your life, you might have a rough couple of weeks at work where you're making mistakes and forgetting things. And I don't know, you're not performing like you used to and you detach from your friends. Our psychological flexibility and our ability to navigate sags. So if you have a kid that, you know, a child that is struggling with these things already, maybe they're making progress. You almost have to expect that this is going to look like it's knocking them backwards. It's just eroding their ability temporarily to navigate the way they're learning to navigate. Recognize that. Recognize it in yourself, too. Right. And I would imagine um, that on top of all the stress of divorce, having a kid who's got their own difficulties to begin with and then maybe seems to be regressing, that a parent could easily um, come down on them. I have a girlfriend who works with neurodiverse um kids. She's also a coach on my team. And she says, um, is it naughty or neurological? And that was a question that blew me away when I was a single mom with a difficult kid. And it was absolutely neurological. And and I would love, like, I think that that's what you're talking about here. It's like what the last thing you want to do is um, treat that child like they're being bad in any way. Yeah, they don't mean to go, you know, it might feel like, well, he's going backwards or she's going backwards. Well, they don't mean to go backwards. And no, they're not trying to be, that's the, and I know the common interpretations would be they're acting out, they're being defiant. Yeah, probably there's might be some of that. But if this person already, this child already has a history of this, then that that's not them being defiant. That's them losing a little bit of their ability to be flexible and navigate. It's okay. It's to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a lot, it's a big topic. And I sometimes we miss, I have people sometimes hear me talk and they, or people like me talking like, well, what about the trauma and what about the healing? And like, I know all of that counts too. It's just, sometimes we have to address the mechanics and put out the fire, be able to be able to deal with that stuff. So that's, yeah. I'm not discounting y'all. I promise. Yeah. yeah. No, no, this is, this is such a great conversation. Last question for you before sure. we um, share all of your information with our listeners. Um, your statement was like, firm and clear and concise and it was you can fix it yeah talk to us about that yeah and again anybody who takes my theoretical orientation toward anxiety and anxiety disorders will echo this i didn't this is not mine i don't have it trademarked i didn't invent it but if from where we sit you can this is a and an situation where your brain has gotten into some bad habits and you could teach it to get out of those habits your brain is an amazing the same mechanism that that got you in that hole can literally be used to get you back out. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's scary. It's all of those things. It's up and down. It's exhausting. But it, none of this is a life sentence. Believe it or not, anxiety disorders are some of the most common mental health issues in the Western world. Also, the good news is the most treatable mental health issues in the Western world. That's not even a question. That's just that's just numbers. So yeah, you're not broken. You get better. Beautiful. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Oh, we could talk for hours and hours, Karen. No, <laughs> I think you did a very good job of of addressing your clients and what they're dealing with and the people listening. So I commend you for what you're trying to do for people. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. So again, um, how, what are the many ways that our listeners can find you, Drew? 
probably if you just put in Google, you know, go to Google and put in the anxious truth or Drew Linsalata, just put in the anxious truth. You're going to find it. It's it's on all the podcast platforms. There's a YouTube channel. There's my website. There's the books I've written. It's all there. Or just go to the anxious truth.com. All this stuff is there. Nothing and great. you have you have a gift for our listeners, too. We what do. is your gift? So if you go to, um, I should have probably given you like a custom URL for this. That's my fault. But if you go to the anxious truth.com and click on the books part, if you want to know what I live through, because I give you a pretty detailed, you know, account of what an anxiety disorder feels, looks like, and what recovery looks like, go to the anxious truth.com, click on books and look for an anxiety story. That's the first book I ever published. That's my account of 25 years of this and what I did to get better. That's free. Just click on the links to get it for free. You can download it as an MP3 to listen to it or a PDF, share it. I don't care. I can charge people to read my story. That's crazy. So, uh, oh, beautiful. And that's going to, that, that is in the um, show notes too. So if you're driving, just check out the show notes when you're, when you're standing still and safe and, uh, and you can click right over and download that. Drew, this has been just, it's just been so informative, so insightful. I really, really appreciate what you're doing for the world and your spending this time with us and sharing your your information and your wisdom anytime thanks for having me i enjoyed it too so and we will be back again real soon with another episode of divorce trauma recovery until then you stay tuned you take care Joe and their spouse always seemed to be fighting, but nothing was ever resolved. Their spouse would constantly blame them, unwilling to take any responsibility. Joe lived in the tension of walking on eggshells, doubting themselves, and over time, they became unhinged, angry, and triggered, struggling further with shame and self-condemnation. Their reactivity was used as proof that they were the problem. If you're in a relationship or marriage filled with conflict and blame, and you're wondering, is this normal or could it be toxic? Take the quiz and find out how toxic your relationship is. Go to journeybeyonddivorce.com backslash toxic quiz and find out today. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women throughout one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.